0: And uh, the idea is that we want, as believers, to live in a way that uh, fits with the way Jesus called those first believers. So uh, we're doing uh, the series, it's called Radical. It's about taking back our faith from the American dream. It's about us becoming the people God's called us to be and, uh, and living life in a way that fits with the terms of the agreement when Jesus called his first disciples in the New Testament. If you have a Bible, and I hope you do, uh, I'd like for you to uh, open up to Matthew there, we're, we're going to be in chapters uh, 9 and 10, mostly in 10 in a bit here, uh, but we're going to look through some stuff in 9. And I would also invite you to uh, look at the worship guide here in the bulletin there, in the beginning of, uh, of sermon notes there it says, what do you blank and etc. on down there on the inside of the worship guide. I'd like to invite you to follow along, we'll fill in those blanks along the way as, uh, as a way for you to participate in what we're going through today. Let's go ahead and, uh, and pray as we jump in. Father in heaven, it is our heart's desire to serve you. It's our heart's desire to follow as you called. So Lord, we want to relive those experiences of the first disciples, hearing those words from you to us so that they would be fresh, so that they would continue to call us, so that wherever we are in our journey with you, Lord, that we would continue to see our life in ways that are a response to your call on our lives. So, Lord, whatever you ask of us, we say yes. Whatever you call, we say yes. However it is that you have Challenge us to acknowledge you. We say yes to that, Lord. And so we ask that our time together would be uh, fruitful toward that end, that your Spirit would uh, speak to our hearts and convict us, and also encourage us to continue living as you've called us. We ask this in the name of your Son Jesus. Amen. So I have a quick question. It's the first blank on your outline. It's a pretty simple question. The question is, what do you fear? What do you fear? In life, what are some of your greatest fears? Now, don't worry, we're not going to have a sharing time. We're not going to ask you to raise your hand and, and start to share. Hey, my, my greatest fear is being singled out in the middle of a worship service uh, and asked to share my greatest fear. It's a multi layered fear there. Uh, but, but just to yourself, as we dive in here, I want to ask you to answer that question for yourself. Maybe even write down a couple things. The question is what do you fear? in life. I got a couple of fears. I'll start the bidding by uh, by telling you some of mine. I fear living a life of insignificance and unimportance. I fear that. I fear that my life and my resources will be wasted on silly things. Now, those are kind of honorable fears. Like Like, who doesn't want their life to count, right? I mean, that's not a bad fear to have, in a way. But but how about this? I fear that you will know that I don't know everything. You're all think, sitting there going, "Well, duh, we already know that." I, I I fear being wrong and not knowing everything. I I fear I fear loneliness. I fear being by myself, and so I like to have a lot of people around. Whatever I'm doing, I mean. Our staff knows that. I I, I drive them out of their minds sometimes. I I can see it on Tommy's face. I walk in some days, and he's got to be thinking, seriously, again, you've got something else to ask me about? And I'm just just that kind of a guy. I like to have people around and and participate with them in in whatever's going on in my life. Fears in life are, are kind of a funny thing. It causes us to do silly things. And and, and the funny part, the, the ironic part about our fears in life and the way they motivate us is that oftentimes what we fear isn't necessarily something we're all that aware of. We often don't know what it is that we fear or why we fear a certain thing, or a certain person, or a certain kind of situation. We're not even always aware of that. And so fear makes us do kind of silly things, kind of funny things. I've I've told this from before, and some of you may remember it, but it's too good to pass up. So I I want to tell you about how fear uh, made this little kid do something funny. His name was Johnny, and and fear made Johnny uh, do something kind of funny. He was in the kitchen one day as his mother was making supper, and his mom asked little Johnny to go into the pantry to get her a can of tomato soup. Well, he didn't want to go into the pantry alone. You know, it's it dark in there. It must have been one of these big, new, fancy pantries you can walk in. You know, that kind of thing. So he, he says, it's dark in there, and I'm scared. And so he tells his mom, I don't want to go into that pantry by myself. So mom asked again, and, and Johnny insisted, there is, there is no way I'm going into that pantry by myself to get that can of tomato soup. Well, Mom said, it'll be okay. It's going to be okay, Johnny. Jesus will be in there with you. And so Johnny, Johnny summoned up his courage and, and walked hesitantly to the door and, and slowly opened it, peeked inside behind the door, saw that it was dark, and started to leave when all of a sudden an idea came to his head. An idea came to Johnny's mind. He looks in there, peeks around the door, and he says, Jesus, if you're in there, could you hand me that can of tomato soup? You know, fear makes us do funny things like that. I found a list of some crazy phobias that are apparently diagnosable conditions. Many of you have probably heard of agoraphobia, which is the fear of open spaces. There's also a fear of open high spaces, aeroacrophobia. There's a fear of numbers. I had that all through high school and that one math course in college, arithmophobia, fear of numbers. There's a fear of flowers. Anthrophobia. I I can't imagine having that kind of fear. You know, somebody says, no, I'd like to give you some, you know, some nice flowers. And I can't imagine saying, you know what, really? I don't want those beautiful tulips. I have a fear of flowers. Uh, Fear of walking. Fear of chickens. Fear of garlic. Fear of flutes. Fear of gold. I don't understand that one. Bring it on. Uh, Fear of the northern lights. Some of you have probably heard of this one. Fear of peanut butter getting stuck to the roof of your mouth. And uh, fear of ventriloquists' dummies, animatronic creatures, wax statues, or anything that falsely represent a sentient being. That's just 12 of 68, 18% of just the A's. There are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of diagnosable fears that have continued to be uh, manifested in the lives of people. And so it does kind of funny things, but, but, the, but the truly, the rub of this, the truly crazy part, is that we are rarely aware of what those fears are and how they affect us. We are rarely aware of what those fears are and how they affect us it is said of the Soviet dictator Joseph Stalin that he so feared for his safety at his residence in Moscow that he had eight bedrooms built and he would randomly pick one each night so that no one would know where he was sleeping. Now, that sounds to us sort of ridiculous, sort of crazy, but it's not just Soviet dictators who are ruled by fears in life. It's us, too. Oftentimes, we talk or we act. We even parent We relate to one another in certain ways because of our fears. Vice versa, sometimes we don't talk or we don't behave or we don't parrot in certain kinds of ways because of fear. You see, it's a a motivating factor for our lives, for much of our behavior, the ways we act or that we don't act. The person who doesn't want to speak up for fear of saying something wrong that's that's me. I've got that fear. Not the speaking up part so much as the being wrong part. The helicopter parents, maybe you've heard that term, helicopter parents who hover over their children and refuse to let them to go anywhere for fear of their safety. The person, in fact, the person who hoards what God's given them, is that not motivated by fear, really? We struggle in our relationships because of fear. Marriage relationships, years and years can go by in our relationships in our marriage before either spouse begins to realize the kind of hurt and damage from the past, the fears that keep us from relating with one another in open and honest kinds of ways. Fear is defined as an unpleasant emotion. That's caused by the belief, the belief that someone or something is dangerous and likely to cause pain. The problematic part of this is that in our efforts to avoid pain and hardship, we learn to live Christian lives that do the same. And we carry that into our relationships with one another at church. We carry that into the way we program, the way we put together our ministries. We learn to disciple people into a relationship with the local church and our standards of respectability instead of discipling people into a relationship with Christ because we fear that somebody is not going to like someone in the way they look or they act in our congregation. What we do is we give in to the lowest common denominator of pain avoidance. This is what we do in our Christian life. We give in to the lowest common denominator of pain avoidance so that our mission as believers, our mission as believers takes a back seat to our personal dream of peace and security and affluence. Let me say that again because it's the problem with many Christians' lives in America today. Pain avoidance becomes the motivating factor for how it is, why it is that our mission to which Jesus has called us takes a backseat to the American dream of personal peace and affluence. A couple clarifications before we jump into the text of Matthew. We've already said this before, but it's worth saying again, there's nothing wrong with having a lot of money or material resources. Nothing at all. It's a good thing, in fact. Scripture talks about it being a blessing. Nothing wrong with having a lot of material resources as long as they do not become the God of our lives in a way that supplants or replaces God's calling to make disciples. And secondly, to say that we learn to avoid pain doesn't mean that we try to seek it out. No one is suggesting that we seek after suffering, but we are saying that when we avoid pain as a way of the mission of God in our lives, taking a back seat, something is wrong. You see that smack dab in the middle of this passage and throughout this passage in Matthew. We live in a world in fact, we live in churches and interact with one another in a way that teaches us a belief system that fundamentally avoids pain and hardship and difficult things because of our fear. We'll talk about where that fear comes from here in the passage in a second. So I want to I ask you some questions before we dive in. <clears throat> Is A fear-based existence that hoards for our own personal affluence and security what God calls us to. Is that the term of following Jesus he sets forth in the New Testament? The big idea today is this. Fear of man. Fear of man starves our lives of gospel purpose. Those kinds of fears of what humans can do. They starve our lives of gospel purpose. And it's only fear of God. It is only fear and worship and awe and reverence of holy God that can fill our lives with gospel courage. You see, the gospel, when Jesus set forth his demands, his terms for following him in the New Testament, he said, you come to me and you die to follow me. Matthew 10, 16-33 talks about this in three different kinds of ways that we're going to unpack here in a second. As you'll see in these three sections, Jesus sends out his disciples on these terms with the understanding that fear of man cannot be a motivating factor for what they do and what they are called to be as disciples. It's fear of God that motivates them. It's fear of God that is the place from which our courage comes as Christians. Courage to stand before other people and to proclaim the gospel. Let's look at this. He talks about commission in verses 16 uh, through 25 here. I want you to follow along. Matthew 10, verses 16 uh, through 25. For it is not you who speak, but the spirit of your father speaking through you. Verse 21. Brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. For truly I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. And finally, verses 24 and 5, a disciple is not above his teacher nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? Last week we talked about radical compassion. Radical compassion for the lost. And we left it with Jesus praying for, For harvest workers. Look at 9.37 and 8. That's where Jesus is beginning to send out his workers, his his disciples as harvest workers. He says in verse 37, Then he said to his disciples, that's it's not the disciples, it's his disciples. That shows ownership. That they are his servants. He said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, there's lots of work to be done, but the laborers are few. Lots of work, few workers. Therefore, Jesus says, pray earnestly, fervently, with, with a purpose and conviction. Pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. And then he says this, in 10.1, he says, He called to him his twelve disciples and gave them authority. It says that he gave them authority to do what he had been doing. And so he's sending them out. Verse 5, it says, Then Jesus, the, these twelve, Jesus sent Out and gave them instructions. Verse seven, he said, "Proclaim as you go." And so he's sending them out with these kinds of purposes. He's saying, "You've seen what I've done. Now you go do this as well." And verse sixteen in our passage today, it says, "Behold," he starts and he says, "Don't miss this because I'm going to paint a picture of what it looks like when I call you to be my harvest." Workers. So Jesus starts out this this sort of locker room speech here. He starts out with these words in verse 16 Behold, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Thank you, Jesus, for those encouraging words. Newly identified messengers, apostles, disciples of Jesus Christ being sent out for the first time. And he says, I'm going to send you out like sheep among wolves. That would be like a high school football coach sending in his offense against the Pittsburgh Steelers defense and saying, I'm going to send you in there to be killed and devoured you are going to be hit by Troy Palamalu. So get this. The great shepherd, the chief shepherd, who says things about good shepherds knowing the sound of their voices, good shepherds laying down his life for his sheep, the great shepherd turns it upside down and he says, now it's your turn to lay down your life. Don't miss what Jesus is saying. Jesus never hesitated to tell his followers what they might expect if they are truly following in his footsteps. He never hesitated to tell them, here is my task for you, at its grimmest, at its worst, and then asking them of all times, do you accept this? This is, not, this is not the world's way to win adherents and followers. There's no commercial about the benefits of following Jesus being told here yet. There are plenty of benefits. We'll get to that in a bit. I think this kind of passage, as Jesus is sending out his followers, as he's sending them out for the first time and saying I'm sending you out as sheep among wolves is extremely important, even just that one idea of him sending us out as sheep among wolves because somehow we gloss over that, don't we? We, we, want, we want the fun parts without the hard things. There's been a lot of press, a lot of articles, conferences, books, about the marked absence of men in our churches. And it's often true in many churches. I don't think it's as true here, frankly, but lots of church growth folks will tell you you have to have youth and children's programs to attract the women of the household. And that's true. But I think that we are missing men, especially younger men, because we have learned to call them to sissy niceness. As if keeping one's nose clean and looking and behaving on the outside a certain kind of way is the goal. As if that life change from within is not. Friends, spiritual battle is from inside out. And we have done that kind of thing at the expense of calling men to hard-fought depth of integrity and character that is willing to lay down one's life for the cause of the gospel because it's bigger than anything else we will ever be called to. Do we want men? Then call them to die as men fighting a battle. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a pastor who stood against the Nazis and he said, When Christ calls a man, he bids him to come and die. To follow Christ is to be so identified with him that it's like we're looking up at a cross, pointing up there, and telling everybody, I'm with him. The problem today is that many of us don't even know we're in a war. We're happy with living a peacetime faith. that doesn't ask anything hard of us because we have fears that push those things away. Don't don't ask me. Don't dare ask me to make a sacrifice. And if we want men who will lead families and marriages and children in a way that could be called discipleship, then we need to call them to life of courage, courageous, life, life-giving, sort of selfless, die to oneself self kind of life. Uh, it may be that the church must learn again that we will not attract anyone to follow Jesus by the easy way. It's the call of the heroic, which ultimately speaks to men's and women's hearts. And that's what Jesus is saying in this passage. He's saying, I'm calling you to die. I'm calling to send you out as sheep among wolves. This is about commission of giving up of one's life. (laughs) But it's not about a blind idiocy. We are called to give up our lives willingly, with eyes wide open, with our minds clearly and deliberately set on it. He says, verse 16, he said, Be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Be smart, be above reproach, Be a man or woman of integrity. And then it says, verse 19, When, not if, when, they deliver you over, don't be anxious about how you are to speak. He's saying, don't be surprised by any of this. Verse 23, When they persecute you, not if, when they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. It's almost like Jesus is saying, okay, so just like I've had to do, you're going to go do this too. And as a matter of course, you're going to be thrown out of towns and persecuted. (laughs) Don't be surprised by that. If they've called the master of the house, if they've called me the evil one, how much more do you think they're going to malign you as you die to oneself to follow me? This is about commission. It's also about encouragement, though. He's sending out the troops with encouraging words in the middle of this. From uh, 26 to 31, he talks about having no fear of them. In other words, you already know It's coming, and then refers back to the wolves and the men in the previous verses. So have no fear of men who are wolves, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed, or hidden that will not be known. You already know what's coming. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light. And what you have heard whispered, proclaim on the housetops. Just keep on proclaiming what I've been telling you and teaching you in our times together. That's what he's saying. And then 28, key passage here, key verse. Do not fear those, that is men, do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear Him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. And Him is not Satan here. Him is God. Rather fear Him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. When we fear men, our lives are starved Of gospel purpose. Because they become about pleasing the people in our horizontal relationships. And that will get us nowhere. That won't won't call anybody to the fight. But when we fear God, our lives will be filled with a gospel courage, willing to do what he's asking us to do here. And he's encouraging them by saying in verse 29, he, he, he he has a couple little illustrations to paint the picture in verse 29. He encourages them by saying, Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father, but even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. He says, I'm going to send you out as as sheep among wolves. I'm, I'm going to commission you, but I'm encouraging you. I know you, I created you, I know what you're made for. You'll step up when the time is right, because your spirit is filled with my spirit. My spirit is in you because we are fully identified with him. Friends, encouragement is an important part of us becoming the kind of people and congregation that God has called us to. Lastly, it comes with a reward. Jesus commissions them. He encourages them. In the last couple of verses, he talks about the reward. Our response Brings about a reward. It says this, verse 32. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. To follow Christ is to be identified with him. So much so that we openly acknowledge him as Lord and Savior before men. How many believers fear men so much that they will not openly acknowledge Jesus as Lord and Savior for fear of what someone thinks or says? 99% of believers in America believe that every Christian has been commanded to preach the gospel to a lost world. 99% believe that every Christian has been commanded to preach the gospel to a lost world. But, 95% outside of their own families have never won a soul to Christ. 85% of all Christians do not consistently witness 71% do not give toward financing of the Great Commission in any way. People are going to say or think our lives are starved of gospel purpose. Do we realize that when we hoard the gospel and our resources to ourselves? It means we refuse to have compassion for other souls? Do we realize that when we refuse to share the Gospel, it demonstrates that we only love ourselves and that we do not truly love others as we openly claim? And so my question is, is your life About fighting a battle. Because Jesus has sent them out, He's commissioned them and encouraged them and talked about a reward for the purpose of fighting a spiritual battle. Is your life about fighting spiritual battles or is it about fighting horizontal, time-bound, earthly kinds of battles? Artificial battles. This past Friday, across this country, we recognized the service of military veterans. These were men who clearly understood the stakes in just horizontal terms. They clearly understood what was at stake if they did not fight to the point of death for many of them. How much more are we called with our lives, to fight spiritual battles. Having the courage, the desire, as G.K. Chesterton says, the desire to live, but taking the form of readiness to die. I'm going to show a little video that uh, is about courage, but it relates to veterans' who have experienced that kind of courage. And it's something that we, that we have emotions stir up in us because we realize what that courage looks like. <laughs>